Okay, we are jumping back into Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. Uh, I hope that you will be mindful of the things that we talked about. We started chapter 11 last week, and it was because it's such a lengthy chapter, uh, I broke it into two parts. So we did one, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 16 last week. We're going to be looking at chapter 11, verses 17 through 40 uh, this morning. And again, I want to challenge you with the idea that, uh, you know, we, we very often we come to church. Hey, Nancy, I didn't know you were here. Good morning. Uh, I forgot my, what I was going to say. <laughs> And most of you know what I'm talking about, right? As you're getting older, it's like you got it, and then whammo, bammo, you don't have it. But anyway, what is very commonly, the title that's very commonly applied to chapter 11, let me just tell you this, if you don't know anything about the book of Hebrews, you should know what chapter 11 is about, okay? It's very often called the Hall of Faith. And what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's going through and he's bringing forth forward particular characters from scripture and uh in speaking about the greatness of the faith that they demonstrated in their life and what they did one of the things i pointed out last week is is, is if you and i went through the old testament and we put picked out the people that we thought were real stand-up believers we probably would have added a few names to this list. But there's also a possibility that we probably wouldn't have emphasized maybe some of the ones that are actually here. Why? Because those people, the stories that we, we have about them from the Old Testament show their imperfection. Every one of them demonstrates great faith in God. That's why they're here. But at the same time, they were very imperfect people who sometimes did some really bad things and let me just tell you if I came up with my own list and called it the hall of faith I probably wouldn't have included a few of these names but I, they're here for a reason and one of the reasons is this is those are the people when I look at in the mirror I see imperfect people imperfect person striving by our faith to be a blessing not only to our God but a blessing to each other that's one of the things I want to bring out this morning and that is these people they demonstrated a very great heart for God but at the same time they showed themselves to be a blessing to the people of God So let's read. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his, his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not, uh, they were not uh, afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be, to, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith. He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept uh, release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect here I'm reading back through this chapter for probably the umpteenth time this week and the lots of stuff I really passed over <laughs> seriously there, there's, I, I don't doubt that I could preach a, a teach preach 10 sermons from what we just read without ever saying the same thing twice that's how deep and rich Hebrews is and this is one of the reasons I'm, I'm preaching this book is because I want to bring it out to your attention that you would give some time to it because it is one of the deepest theological books in the whole Bible but it is rich 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 and golden nuggets spread all over the place I would venture to say, apart from the Gospels, Hebrews is your pastor's favorite book in the whole Bible. And we know all these stories. You know, he's bringing, bringing to light. And I'm not going to go all through all these names because you, you're familiar enough to know how each one of these contributed faith to this whole picture, the things that took place uh, in their lives. But one of the key people here is Abraham. You see, Abraham lifted up, brought forward to, to a degree that other people uh, 
or not necessarily. We know that Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. Not just the Jewish people. He was father of other nations too. But the father of the Jewish people, the Hebrews. But one of the things that is made very clear here, and this is why this is in the New Testament, and that is that he was not only the father of those people, he's also the father of New Testament Christians. It is in that sense that, that he is our father. Just like, like Jewish people can say, and they do this, that, that Abraham's our father, you and I can say the same thing, but we don't mean exactly the same thing. He's our father because he is recognized as the father of faith. The same faith that he had in God, we have in God. That is what we have in common with Abraham. There may be some people in here that have some Jewish heritage, some point in their history. As a matter of fact, I would imagine there probably is. But see, the connection that we have with Abraham has nothing to do physically. It is a spiritual connection. Which some people might look at and say, well, that's not quite as important as the other one. But I would say it's far more important than the other one. Very often in Scripture, Abraham is referred to in regard to his great faith. And how can you summarize what Abraham did? Well, it's this. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord. He believed what the Lord said. And because he did, the Lord reckoned that to him as righteousness. That is the same righteousness that you and I seek. That is the same righteousness that we have. Abraham's name appears a lot in the New Testament. 74 times. I would venture to say that no one is mentioned any more than him except for Jesus. That means this, that we should take note of Abraham. <laughs> and one of the things that we know about Abraham was he was not a perfect person. He was far from perfect. Abraham was saved by faith alone. Then he fits into this category just like you and I do. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Abraham had great faith because God gave Abraham great faith. Not because there was anything very special about Abraham himself. 
Everyone that is saved is saved by grace alone. That means God saving. Faith is the greatest gift that God gives to us. Very often people will picture Christians as very prideful and puffed up people. And very often Christians come across as puffed up and prideful people. So you can understand why that charge is brought sometimes. And sometimes it's actually probably pretty accurate. But how can we ever be prideful and puffed up? If we just remember this simple thing, and that is, we believe, like Abraham believed, only because the Lord himself has enabled us to. It's nothing that we have done. He has done it. And we reap the blessings of it. Now let me just tell you that. People who understand that, there should not be a prideful bone in their whole body. When we really understand what we've just said, there's only one true effect and impact it should have on us. And that is to humble the mess out of us. Not to make us prideful and puffed up. And I want to remind us this morning, because of who we are, there's still sin in our life, but sin doesn't have a death grip on us anymore. It can't kill us. Even though it's still part of our picture. For now. But one of these days, it'll be gone forever. And I don't know about you, but I just relish the thought of that day. When I won't have to deal with your sin anymore. But even more, I won't have to deal with his sin anymore either. What God did a number of times in his life is he put Abraham in what some would call a crisis of faith. Probably the greatest one was when he told him to sacrifice Isaac. That long-awaited son that God had finally brought to him, to Sarah. And now he tells him to take him to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him. The amazing thing to me is this, is obviously Abraham was going to do it. Now, how would you and I react if God called us to do something like that? <laughs> You've made a mistake. You really don't want me to do that. I mean, we'd be talk, trying to talk our way out of it, you know, till the cows come home and this, that, and the other and, and whatever. But, but this is a this demonstration of just how much trust this man had in God. 
knowing that even if he took Isaac out of the picture, that God would still be faithful to the promises he had made to him. The fulfillment of the promises didn't depend upon Isaac. They depended upon God. Why would God call Abraham to do such a thing? Well, I was thinking about this the other day. Because reality is God always knows what we're going to do in every situation. We don't ever surprise him. You never surprised God in your whole lifetime once. So why? It wasn't for God's benefit. It was for Abraham's benefit. God wanted Abraham to see how strong his faith was. Well, and I love Hebrews for a lot of reasons because it really does enlighten us to some things. And one of those is this. He gives us the reason why Abraham was willing even to sacrifice Isaac. The Old Testament doesn't tell us that. I mean, you can assume it or you can glean it from the word, but there's no passage that says that. We're told here that the reason Abraham was willing to do this is because he considered that God is able to raise dead men from the dead. Or raise men from the dead. In other words, that's how great his faith in God was. He knew that even if he sacrificed Isaac, God would raise him to life again. See, this is one of the reasons I, I love the book of Hebrews because we are enlightened to that simple truth because of Hebrews, not the Old Testament. He was confident that even if he slew Isaac, the Lord would raise him to life again. I don't know about you, but you can't have any of my kids. but all because God had made a promise to Abraham and Abraham knew something. And that is that God always keeps his promises. One of the reasons that you and I can even have faith that we're saved is because we know that God is able to save us. God promised Abraham particular things. You know what? God has also promised you and I particular things. 
This whole story is here in Hebrews for a reason, and that is to show the people that he's, the author is writing to that they can have the same faith in God that Abraham had. You see, fundamentally, Abraham had to know this, that even if Isaac died, not that the Lord could or possibly would, but that he would raise him from the dead. Why? Because God had promised in particular things that Isaac was essential to fulfilling. Have you ever seen such great faith as this? And it was that same faith that was passed on down through the generations. All being a prefiguring of the greatest and most faithful of all. Jesus Christ. Who trusted his own very life into the Father's capable hands. See, Abraham great, had great faith. Jesus had perfect faith. He also uses Moses as an example that he, he spends quite a bit of time considering and really, in the beginning, it's not even his faith. It was the faith of his parents who hid him under the threat of losing their own lives by doing it because of the edict of Pharaoh that all the male children were to be killed. Can you imagine? What would you and I have done? God knows. They knew that he was the child of promise. Well, just imagine the great faith that Moses' mother displayed in a number of ways. It had to be faith in God. I mean, could you have taken your, your baby, your little baby, and, and, and put it in a wicker basket and set it in a Nile River? And in doing so, demonstrating her very great faith in God, not just the water that a child would drown in, but the crocodiles and She trusted God to watch over her son. And he also lifts Moses up. That he grows up in the household of Pharaoh. Wealthy, powerful, 
in a high position. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin and considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. He was looking to something far better. Can you imagine being the parents of those Jewish children that were to play a major role in murdering their own sons? Just because of the will of a corrupted Pharaoh. We read things like that and it's shocking to us. But we live in a culture that regularly sacrifices its children. It's become an acceptable practice to do that, in fact. We're talking about abortion. Most what well, we're all of us here in this room, as far as I can see, are old enough we remember a time when there was no such a thing. But now it is a not just a minor thing, it is a major thing. When you consider the numbers through the generations, it is mind boggling. But it's an area where you expect for church people to stand out as being very different in regard to the abortion issue. I got online the other day to look at some statistics. You know, what are the, what is statistics saying about how church people look upon this practice? And some of this stuff is startling. And again, you know, who knows if all this is true? So don't take this as a grain of salt. This is just information that somebody came up with. And they drew conclusions from it. 40% of women who had an abortion were frequent church attenders at the time. 40%. 70% self-identify as Christians. Twenty percent said they attended church at least once a week. So we're not only just talking about churchgoers, we're talking about regular churchgoers. Fifty percent said that no one in the church knew about it. In other words, they didn't tell anyone because they knew what they were doing was not right. 76% said the church had no influence in their decision at all. Wasn't even a consideration. 
sadly, 26% said they expected condemnation from the church if it became common knowledge. That should sadden us more than anything else. I also read some other things. 45% of church-going people believe that abortion should be legal in most cases. And not surprisingly, but very scary, these, these views are most prominent among younger people. Which tells us, more than likely, that the future is not going to look better it's possibly going to look worse. So why, why don't we bring this up this morning? It's because we can take what the author of Hebrews is talking about here with Moses, and we can apply it to the world that we live in. And we see that it's not a whole lot different. But I want to say this to you. This, this practice has been around for most of the history of the world. Ever read anything about Hudson Taylor? He was uh, from England. He was a, became a missionary to China back in the 1800s. He's basically credited with carrying the gospel to China. In his autobiography, which if you've never read it, I have a copy of it if you want to borrow it. Uh, but I mean borrow it. <laughs> okay. Uh, but the faith that he demonstrated was just unbelievable. He's one of those people, one of those, those heroes of the faith that you look to and you think, boy, I wish I was a lot more like him. But he tells the story how, you know, he just went, he, 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 he entered into China, you know, in a place where there almost very few Europeans had ever been because they were not allowed but he basically became Chinese. He dressed like a Chinaman. He, he, he learned Chinese. You know, he, he did everything. But he tells a story about how this one day he was approaching this particular village where he was going to evangelize. And there was this horrible stench. I mean, this sickening, make you want to throw up stench. Coming from this village. But then he gets there, and what he finds is there's a pond there. And in that pond are carcasses of infants decomposing. Because it was the place that people took unwanted children to get rid of them. So I just bring this to your attention this morning because very often people think that this is a modern-day issue. It's not. It is a historical issue. It's been around since shortly after the Garden of Eden, I would imagine. It's also not the unforgivable sin. We need to understand that. It's not. 
But it is surprising how so many in today's church seem to be okay with nothing short of infanticide. At least in certain situations. I want you to notice something too and that is there are a couple of women that are included here. What do you know about Rahab? (laughs) She was a prostitute, right? The whole point here is all these people were scandalous. Every one of them. Gideon and Barak. They were leaders. They were imperfect leaders. They made major mistakes. I could go on and on and on and on. I do want to mention here, too, that it's not all those people that he's, he's mentioned, but he also uses the term others. In other words, there's lots of others I could put in this list. This is not exclusive. It's not exhaustive. He's just using a few as examples. We must remember some things. And one of those is this, is that God is always in control. It may look like he's lost control from our perspective sometimes, but he has not. He's released the restraining reins of sin at times to some degree that we would see the ugliness of it. All of human history is unfolding in every detail according to God's perfect plan. Everything. We don't understand all of it. We have a hard time applying some of it. But the fact of the matter is our God and Savior is in absolute control all the time of all things. He always has been. He is almighty God. So what is it that this almighty God expects from you and I? Faith. Trust. That is manifest in what we say, in what we do. And always remember this, even though your name is not in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, neither is mine. But it is in a more important place. That book that we call the Lamb's Book of Life.
contains the name of everyone who has been saved, who is being saved, and who will be saved throughout time. Written by God's very hand before he created the first person. And again, all of this started. Long before we came. Revelation 21, 27 makes reference to the Lamb's book of life. When was it written? From the foundation of the world. Not on the day that Carol Johnson chose to follow Jesus. Her name was written in the Lamb's book at creation. Some people think this. The Lord looked ahead to the future to see who would be his own by their own volition. In other words, who would choose him without him doing anything at all. Who would come to Jesus. And then their names would be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That perspective is not to be found in Scripture. It doesn't here. It's not here. God has been in control of this process absolutely from the very beginning he has been all along he is today he will be tomorrow what I'm telling you is this is at the very beginning of time God chose to save you And me. Before he created the heavens and the earth. Now doesn't that blow your socks off? So what does this encourage us to do? It encourages us to trust in him. Our faith should be increased as we, in, we study these things in the book of Hebrews. Because you know what? I look at these people and I say, that's me. But God saved them. So he's very perfectly capable of saving me, myself, and I. And you too, by the way. <laughs>